Good evening. How we doing? You guys having a good week? Good. You guys ready to see how much trouble we can get into tonight? All right. You asked for it. So if you're new with us, um, we are, are in a series we've been doing this semester, answering questions you guys submitted uh, really way back over winter break, and we've been walking through a lot of great questions you guys have had, and uh, which by the way, I'm, I'm Kyle, if I haven't met you before, I, don't, I think we all know each other at this point here, but glad you're here. Um, but yeah, so we're answering questions you guys have submitted, and uh, one of you, whoever you are, <laughs> anonymously, asked, what does the Bible say about alcohol? You're going to get a lot more Bible than you probably asked for in that question tonight. There's 25 verses we're going to look at <laughs> this evening about it, but uh, that's going to be the question we're going to address tonight. Um, as we, this may be the last week of our Q&A series. I'm still thinking through next week, and so, but this may be the last week. We may have one more week of it. I'm working on that, but, um, but this will probably be a, a, I'm not sure if you've heard a message on alcohol in the church before, especially in the Baptist church. I don't know, and so uh, hopefully this will be a helpful thing for you for you tonight. Um, but as we get started, I, I do want to say that, um, so there's this thing in church that we sometimes call a theological triage. And so like, say you go to the hospital and you have, like you broke your finger and you go to the nurse and you say, Hey, I broke my finger. I need, I need help to fix my finger. And someone comes in while you're in the waiting room and they have like a, a bullet hole wound, right? Who's going to get treated first? The bullet hole, right? Yeah. So triage, right? They determine who gets treated first. So in the church, many times, or sometimes, we use these phrases, theological triage, to talk about different levels of things we believe and how that affects how we relate as a church. And sometimes you can explain them as three different tiers. You have the top tier, uh, which we would say are things like uh, things that you can't be a Christian without agreeing on. Things like salvation only in Jesus, right? The Bible being the infallible word of God, all things like that. Tier two would be things that uh, you would probably be in a different denomination over. Things like baptism. Do you baptize infants? Do you not? You know, things like how we do church government, things like that. The people like our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ, we love them, they're Christians, but we would disagree on some things, which means that we're not in the same denomination. We don't meet on Sundays together, right? Then there's tier three, that is things that we can have different views on even within the same church. And things like, you know, sometimes political views, uh, you know, things about the ways that we view certain ethical issues in, in the world. And tonight, as we talk about alcohol, this is going to be one of those third tier issues. But even as we talk about this issue, I want you to know that what we're looking at tonight is the Bible. It's not necessarily Kyle's thoughts on this. I want you to see a lot of scripture. I will give you a couple of this is Kyle, not the Lord, thoughts at the end just for you to chew on that I think are helpful. But tonight, what I think the most helpful thing is that literally the question was, what does the Bible say about alcohol? And I'm gonna give you, in many ways, what the, what the Bible says about it, okay? So, but before uh, we get into that, um, I wanna give a little bit of a prelude of, of two things I think are super helpful for us to, uh, to begin with as we talk about this. The first is this, there's gonna be tons of verses, so don't, you can try to look them up in your Bible. There's gonna be on the screen. You may just wanna follow with me on the screen because otherwise you're gonna be, unless you were like Bible drill champion of your church, you may not be able to find them all, okay? You guys know what Bible drill is. Do they still do Bible drill? Like, okay, I don't know if that was still a thing. Okay, so the first thing we need to understand is as we talk about this uh, tonight is more than anything else, we need to understand in this issue is that we have to first submit to the lordship of Jesus in all things, in every corner of our lives. 
You know, Shelby prayed that prayer where, you know, God, we pray that you're not going to be something we do on a Sunday or Wednesday, but an all-encompassing. And that would include the way that we view things like alcohol. Colossians 3.17 says this. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Which would mean that in everything we do, every facet, every corner, that we bring our faith into it, right? That we think, think theologically, we think about how does my identity as a Christian, as a child of God, affect the way that I'm going to view this issue. And we submit to whatever the Lord would tell us and teach us in that, no matter what it is. So that's important first to um, remember. And that's important because, you know, for this issue of alcohol, some of us, we all come in here with different perspectives. Like my background is I come from a small uh, town in Southern Alabama, you know, Southern Baptist, very traditional conservative church to where any form of alcohol is, is sin to even drink at all is immediately sinful. Some of y'all may come from different parts of the country where that's just not the culture because it's not the South. And so the idea is that as we come to this issue tonight, we don't come to it with, okay, what does my cultural background teach me? What does the word of God teach us? What does the, what does the Bible teach us? Okay. And I think what we're going to be, if we come with that position, we're going to be challenged no matter where we initially come into this with, because the Bible has a lot to say about this issue. So we got to first come trying to put our own kind of cultural things aside and see what the Bible says. But the second thing you want to see is not do we only submit to the lordship of Jesus. We also understand that we have to submit to the authority that God has placed in the world in this issue as well. So Romans 13, 1 and 2. You knew this was coming, this part, right? But it's important to say. Romans 13, 1 says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except for God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So what does that mean? It means that the laws that we have in place, the governmental authorities that we have in our country have been placed there by God, that they have been anointed by God, appointed by God to really do two things, to uphold good and to punish evil. And while, yes, there are, there are unjust systems in our country, there are unjust laws that God, even in his sovereignty, is working through those things. And we have a responsibility as Americans to be a part of seeing them be just laws. But what that means ultimately is that the laws that we have that we've been given are laws that God wants us to follow and to break those laws. Unless you're talking about something like where they say, hey, you can't worship Jesus, that's against the law, then we'll break that one. But when it comes to other things, we want to honor and submit to the governing authorities. So long story short, what that means is the government says you got to be 21 to buy alcohol, to drink, right? So if you're not 21 in this room, if you're below that, guess what? It's always sin for you to drink. (laughs) Done. (laughs) All right, period, full stop. If you're under 21, it's a sin, okay? Because the Bible says, obey the governing authorities. Government says don't do it. Therefore, that's not a law that supersedes God's law because it's not something like, hey, don't worship Jesus. It's something that you, if you're under 21, it's a sin. Easy. Shortest sermon ever. Okay. Um, So start with that. Okay. Because I know many of you in here are in that boat, but I also know that you're going to eventually be 21, right? Brandon is 21 today because it's his birthday, right? Yeah. And he and Lauren got engaged on the week over the weekend. Yeah. So congratulations, y'all. So, but you're going to eventually get to 21. And honestly, the culture of the world today, you as a Christian need to be able to think theologically about alcohol. You need to think theologically about it. You don't need to just fall back on the defaults of what your friends say for sure, but even just what your family may think, things like that. You as a Christian need to have a good reason to believe what you believe when it comes to this issue, because you're going to be pressed on it no matter what. If you haven't already, probably, you probably already have. Um, you come, you step on campus day one, you're already pressed on it, okay? But you need to be able to think 
theologically and, and say, okay, here's where I fall in this and why I do, okay? So, but with all that said, uh, what I wanna do is really um, do three things tonight. But first, before we even get into those three points, I wanna kind of help you understand the work that I've done to give us the information that we have tonight. So I did a little work this week looking up... Um, I literally read every Bible verse that mentions wine or strong drink, okay? There's about 300 of them in the Bible. <laughs> There's a lot of it. Uh, and so I, I, I read them all for the most part. I maybe sped read a couple of them because they're the same phrases, but they're all there. And what I've done is this. Is I boiled down everything into a few things, but it just for your own background knowledge, know this. There are two Hebrew words mainly. There's a lot more than two, but two main Hebrew words for wine. is yayin which kind of sounds like something you say when you have too much wine. You're like, yayin! But like, yayin is the first Hebrew word for wine, or yayin. And then tyrosh, I'm probably butchering this, okay, but it's, it's the Hebrew. Tyrosh is the other one. Yayin is what we're going to look at tonight. It's wine. It's like, even, most times you see wine in the Bible, it's, it's the word yayin. The other word, tirosh, is sometimes you see like sweet wine, new wine, something like that. That's the other second most occurrence of of wine in the Bible. That one we're going to avoid because there's a little bit of debate about that when it says sweet wine or new wine. Is that like new as in like it's not fermented yet, so it's not alcoholic? There's a debate around that. Okay, so we're just going to put those aside and only look at yayin, which like I'll talk about in a second, is very clearly alcoholic wine. So that's the first one. The second um word that's not wine that really classifies all other fermented beverages is the word shakar in Hebrew, which means strong drink. If you see strong drink in your Old Testament, that's the word shakar. Those are definitely beverages that can get you intoxicated if you drink too much of them. So that's the Hebrew words we're looking at. Then in Greek, there's two Greek words that are mainly there. There's oinos, which is wine. And then there's oxos, which is sour wine, which is the stuff that like when Jesus was crucified, they offered up the sour wine. That's oxos. We're not looking at that tonight because that's a different kind of wine. I don't really know a lot about it. I didn't research it because it's not relevant to our conversation, but we're just looking at oinos. So we're looking at these three words, yain, shekar, and oinos, because the Bible clearly describes those things as something that is alcoholic in content and can potentially get you intoxicated because I mentioned that because there are debates on, well, there's this one word that would mean like grape juice and people kind of use that to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to prove points that I think are a little bit stretched. So what we're looking at tonight is that as you, as we walk through this, you'll see that this, the words wine that we're looking at clearly are something that all three points I mentioned in my outline are true about, but also the Bible clearly makes it the case that it's actually alcoholic. It's not grape juice. It's not super diluted down wine that is, might as well be grape juice. It's not what we're talking about tonight. It's actually something that is alcoholic. It will be comparable in some ways to alcohol today. Okay, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But there are cases where they, do, they did dilute down wine back in the day. If you remember my message on First Timothy a few, like a month ago or two months ago, Timothy is told by Paul, hey, drink some, uh, some wine for your stomach. That would have been diluted down because it was medicinal. It was kind of like Pepto-Bismol for him, essentially. That was diluted down wine for medicinal use, but that was a specific instance of something that was different than, they definitely drank non-diluted down wine in that sense, too. Um, I don't really know how the alcohol content proof worked out, but the point is that it is something that could get you intoxicated. Okay, so all that said, that's my background work, if you understand, and I've, I've thought through some of those issues if you are aware of those conversations that happen in this. But with all that said, um, tonight I want to point out three things that the Bible says about alcohol, and we're going to look at, like I said, 25 verses. So buckle up, we got a lot of things to look at. Honestly, I'm going to give you some, some comments about this stuff, but a lot of this tonight is me just pointing you to what the Bible says about it. Okay? First thing is probably the point you never thought you read in a Baptist church. 
is this, is that the Bible describes alcohol as a blessing from God for us to enjoy. Like I said, my background uh, growing up was not, I was not taught this in, <laughs> in the Baptist church, okay? And people have good intentions in it, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But if you look at the Bible, you're going to find that this is a common, a common theme. Uh, we're going to kind of make our way through semi in order of Old Testament, New Testament. Just to, I'm going to show you not all 300 verses, but just a few verses to see this. The first one is super random, but I, I think we'll go ahead and, and knock it out. It's Genesis 14, 18. It says this, it says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Seems like a random verse, but what's happening there is Abraham has been visited by this priest Melchizedek in the Old Testament. If you know much about that story, we know that the book of Hebrews would tell us that Melchizedek in some ways was a type of Christ. He was a picture of Christ. He may even been Jesus himself appearing to Abraham pre-incarnation to Abraham as a, a messenger of God, essentially. And so we see Melchizedek, he's a picture, a type of Christ that Hebrews then talks more about. And we see him doing what? Bringing bread and wine. What's the easy application of that? What's the Lord's Supper, right? We see that consistent theme of bread and wine. But yet again, that word there is the word yain, which is alcoholic wine. So we see a picture of Jesus himself giving Abraham bread and wine. First off, we see, okay, so, he, so Jesus is not gonna be giving him something that he doesn't want him to drink, right? <laughs> That'd be the, the ultimate, like, Jesus juke. Hey, have this, but don't drink it, right? It's not, it's not his point. And so we see already that God is beginning to put a, paint a positive picture of this. So you got that. Then actually, I'm gonna go to Leviticus 23. So skip that next part of Psalms and go to Leviticus, and we'll come back to Psalms in a second. So Leviticus 23 uh, is another verse. This is talking about different kinds of offerings in the Old Testament, that the people of Israel had to give. Leviticus 23, 13 says this, and the grain offering with it, with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And then here's the second part. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. I have no idea how much a hen is, but I will say this. Yet again, wine is something that comes up. It's now a offering that the Jews can bring to God. They would offer other things like they'd offer livestock, they'd offer, you know, grain, all this stuff. But yet here, they're also able to offer up wine. Why would God allow them to offer wine as an offering if it was something that was evil and wrong and something that he never wanted them to to drink? He's not saying, hey, come pour all your wine out here so you don't drink it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is something that is a blessing from him, just like grain, just like livestock, other things are, are a blessing. Let's go to uh, Deuteronomy. We'll come back to Psalms in a second, Joseph. Sorry, I, I skipped around. Deuteronomy 14, 22. This is a little bit longer, but let me read this one. This is another example. This is about tithing with the, uh, the Jews in the Old Testament. It says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God and the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household." And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. 
What's going on here? Well, the tithe was a thing. It was a complicated thing in Old Testament, but it at least was one thing that God called the Israelites to do, to take the first kind of yield of their crops and to tithe that to the, pre, the Levites and really to the Lord in Jerusalem. That they, like today, we kind of say the 10% is our tithe. Well, to them in the Old Testament, the first yield of their crops, they would take that. It was dedicated to the Lord. They would take it to the temple dedicated and part of being a priest was you got to eat and survive off that tithe in the temple it was one way that the because the priest didn't work out in the fields they worked in the temple so but what happens here is let's say that you live way away from jerusalem you can't um you can't carry like your 17 wagon loads of grain or whatever if you're really well off to the temple what do you do what well, says here hey if you have too much you can't get it to the temple in jerusalem here's what you can do you can sell it all take that money bring it to jerusalem and then you can buy whatever it says you want to enjoy a feast. And then the idea there at the last of that part was says you shall not neglect the Levite within your towns. He's basically like, hey, give the leftovers to the Levites that are there so they can eat. Because you're going to have a bunch of food if you sell it. So if you sell it, get some money and, and buy a feast. So invite the Levites to be able to take part in some ways of that feast that you have. Um, so that's the idea there. But I want you to see exactly what he says the feast can involve. It says oxen and sheep or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. So this is saying that as you celebrate this feast in Jerusalem as part of your tithe, you can enjoy wine. You can enjoy a strong drink. It's, it's not described in a negative way here. It's described in a good and a positive way, something to be enjoyed in God's presence, in his presence as a blessing from him, just like a good meal is a blessing from him, that you could enjoy the wine or the strong drink as a blessing from him. Now let's go to Psalm 104, 14 and 15. This is one that I think is probably the, the clearest we see in the Bible about this. Psalm 104, 14 says this. It says, this is all talking to God as a psalm of praise. It says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the hearts of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So this is not written like some of the Proverbs where it's talking about wine in terms of a wisdom way. It's just straight up saying here that, right, that God has given us plants to cultivate to enjoy so we can enjoy food, right? He's given us wine to gladden the heart of man. He's given us oil to make the face shine, bread to strengthen our heart. So listed within these things is wine, alcohol, an alcoholic beverage mentioned as something that can be a blessing for us to enjoy. And honestly, it's pretty honest about it. It says wine to gladden the heart of man. There's some people that would say, well, you only can have alcohol to the point where like, you can have a, a tiny bit to where you don't feel any, anything because it's really, really small. Well, that's not really what it says. It says to gladden the heart of man. Now, we're going to talk a lot about the boundaries and what we should be wise with with this. But it says that even it's like a natural, normal thing for wine to gladden your heart. In the same way that coffee is going to give you some energy, right? Because you drank some caffeine. In the same way, the, um, I guess what, it's a depressant you know, value of alcohol is a thing that is naturally part of drinking alcoholic beverage that in itself is a blessing from God in some ways now we're going to talk about the wisdom part a whole lot in a minute so don't get too excited yet all right but we see that even the effects of wine in some ways they're a blessing from God something that he's given us to enjoy that psalm I think makes it really clear right moving on to New Testament all right there's a lot more we can look at the Old Testament let me give you two in the New Testament that I think are really clear um, this is one that Every, every drunk person downtown that you talk about Jesus with, they say they love this verse because it's Jesus turning water into wine, right? This is the one that, that loves to get brought up with this. But John 2, 9 and 10 says this, when the master of the feast, this is after he has, uh, Jesus has turned water into wine, is when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, this is Jesus' first miracle, 
and did not know where it came from, that the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now you'll hear some people or read some things where they say, well, this wine wasn't like alcoholic. It was like grape juice, right? It was really either really diluted or it was some kind of, it wasn't fermented yet. You'll hear that kind of stuff. But I think the text pretty clearly shows us that's not the case. Because look, what does the, the master say? He says, everyone serves the good wine first. Then once people are drunk freely, then they give them the poor wine. Why would that be the case? He's like, well, once they've had a bunch of wine, they can't tell the difference between the cheap stuff and the good stuff. Then I give them the, the, the good stuff, right? Um, or sorry, the cheap, the cheap stuff, sorry. So he's saying, yeah, like so once they have, they have too much, when they've gotten drunk, then I give them the cheap stuff so they don't know. So like, obviously the wine there was something that was alcoholic, right? It, was, it had intoxicating properties because otherwise he wouldn't have said that, right? So I, I think that says this is not grape juice, this is wine as we would think of it. And we have no reason to doubt that Jesus himself probably had some wine at the wedding, right? We know he had some wine at the Lord's Supper with the 12 apostles, with the disciples at um, the night before he was betrayed and crucified. So we know that Jesus, in some ways, um, drank wine, yet he never sinned. One more thing I want you to see, and then we'll get to point number two. First Timothy 3.8, we just finished this series in First Timothy 3. But what is one of the, this is mentioned multiple times in the book, but one of the qualifications for church leaders is found in 1 Timothy 3.8 with deacons. It says deacons. It also mentions a similar thing for elders. It says that deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Does that say not drinking any wine at all? No, right? It says not addicted to much wine. So it's not a complete abstinence that they're requiring here, but it's a not addicted to much wine. It's, it's a character quality. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's moderation, right? It's moderation. It's having self-control in this area. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in just a minute. But I, I want to bring all those verses up to say this, is that, like I said, my background has been that, you know, if you're a Christian, if you're a good person, right, you just don't drink, right? Because it's a bad thing to do. It's, it's, it's evil to drink. That's kind of the culture I grew up in. But... If you read the Bible, that's, that's just not what the Bible tells us, right? The Bible paints a picture of alcohol as being a blessing God has given us in ways like a good meal as a blessing God has given us. Like all these other things he's given us, he's been given to us for our blessing, but he's, been, he's given it to us in a way that we have to practice self-control. We have to practice moderation. We have to be wise in it. In some ways, it's like the gift of sex, that God has given us the blessing of sex, but he gives us boundaries within marriage for it to be practiced. And outside of those boundaries, it's harmful for us. It's, it's, it's sin. But alcohol is the same way that within the right parameters and boundaries of moderation, of wisdom, it's for our blessing. But once we get outside of that, it's sin. And we're going to see that pretty clearly. So first thing we see, the Bible describes alcohol as a blessing for us to enjoy. But secondly, the Bible warns very seriously about the sin of drunkenness. Just think about it. There are so many stories in the Bible that say, hey, if you drink too much, things are gonna go really bad for you. Um, just a few examples. I gave you lots of them, but Genesis 9, the first instance of wine in the Bible, the first mention of alcohol is Noah. After he gets off the ark, he goes, he makes a vineyard. He drinks way too much wine from the vineyard. He gets drunk. And whatever it means for him to lay uncovered in his tent and his, his nakedness to be exposed, it can mean a lot of things. None of them are good. <laughs> but whatever that means, that's what happens when he has too much wine, right? So the Bible pretty early on is like, hey, while this is a blessing from the Lord, you got to be really careful with it. It can go south very quickly. So we see that in Genesis 9. 
In Genesis 19, an even worse story is that Lot, the guy whose wife turned to a pillar of salt, they eventually retreat him and his daughters into the mountains after escaping Sodom. They live up in the mountains. His daughters are thinking, okay, we're never gonna get back into society again, but we really wanna have kids because hey, we need to carry on the next generations. What do they do? They get their dad drunk and they sleep with him so they can have kids by him. All right, it's jacked up. It's really messed up. All right, this is not the stuff you hear in VBS, okay? But it happens, all right? Imagine that in VBS. That would go really weird, okay? Genesis 19 talks about that. And they, and they say, hey, we're gonna get our dad drunk so he'll do this, all right? So yet again, we see that wine not used properly within wisdom, really bad things happen. Consider 2 Samuel 11. David got Uriah drunk so that he could really essentially get him killed ultimately, but David was trying to cover up his own idolatry with Bathsheba by getting Uriah drunk and then sending him home to his wife, hoping that maybe you know, he would get his wife pregnant and they, or think he got his wife pregnant and cover up the adultery. Didn't work, but David was trying to use drunkenness to cover up his own sin. One more example. The priests during Isaiah's time, we're going through Isaiah right now, one of the main condemnations that Isaiah makes against the priests during that time is the fact that they are a bunch of drunks, that they are constantly drinking, they're not practicing their priestly duties very well, but over and over again, he, he condemns them for their drunkenness in Isaiah 5. We skipped over that for table groups for sake of time, but Isaiah 5 is all about how the priests are getting wasted every day and stumbling in the streets and not doing their jobs well, okay? Yet again, so all kinds of pictures of how the Bible can, or how alcohol can be used very poorly it can lead to lots and lots of sin if not used correctly. Um, there even are specific times when the Bible says you should, you should not drink alcohol at all. Uh, the Nazarite vow is a thing that gets introduced in the book of Numbers. That if a Christian or a, a Jew, and even I guess a Christian, but really a Jew, especially at that time, if they wanted to dedicate themselves to the Lord for a special period of time, for a special service, or just kind of an act of devotion to God, they could take what they call the Nazarite vow, which meant they would not do certain things, like they would fast in certain ways to express their devotion to God. Kind of like you may fast today from something like during Lent to increase your devotion, your focus on the Lord. The Nazarite vow was a version of that in the Old Testament for the Israelites. Some people were born given the Nazarite vow, like Samson was given it from birth. John the Baptist was given it from birth. But normally the way it worked is you took, you took it on yourself. You chose to for a season of time, not your whole life. And part of the Nazarite vow was mentioned in number six is that you wouldn't drink alcohol or strong drink. That if you were choosing for a specific time to dedicate yourself to the Lord, you would choose not to drink alcohol. Two other examples of this. Uh, the priests were not supposed to drink wine before or during their time of service in the temple. Um, in Proverbs 31, we see this very clearly. It's mentioned other places, but Proverbs 31, the, the one part not about the Proverbs 31 woman <laughs> is this. In verse four, it says, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So they're saying, hey, if you're king, you've got some really important decisions to make. You need to be on your guard and, and ready at any moment to make the right decision. You don't need to have alcohol available because what if you have a little bit too much and you get to where you can't think clearly and then someone comes up and says, hey, we're about to start a war. Do we go to war or not? <laughs> right? You don't want the president making you know, the nuclear bomb decisions with the nuclear button right? if he's had a couple too many. You don't want that to happen. And so the same idea here with, with the kings is that they shouldn't drink any alcohol because of the temptation to maybe drink too much and make some bad decisions for their country. The same thing for, uh, for priests. Both priests and kings had certain seasons where um, it was not right for them to drink. 
which I think would even translate over to Christians, that there are, I think, certain seasons that it's wise to do that. Um, I, the, I'm on staff at BCM now for our BCM leadership team. We ask BCM leader team, leadership team students to not drink alcohol at all, no matter if you're 21 or not, because of that specific season, we believe as a leader on the leadership team, it's best for you to say, you I'm putting this away. I'm not even going to even think about that part of my life as a way to, number one, uphold my witness, but also to dedicate myself to the Lord during this time of service. And so there's a biblical precedent for that, all right? But moving on with drunkenness, uh, the sin of drunkenness is mentioned over 70 times in the Bible. So drunkenness is not something foreign to the Bible. It's mentioned over 70 times. Let me give you some examples of the way it talks about drunkenness. This gives us a lot of good um, insight into how we should think about alcohol. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says this, his wine is a mocker, strong, br- strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so right, right here, it's not saying that like literally wine is a mocker, you know, because wine's not a person, but it's saying that you, overindulging in wine or overindulging in strong drink can lead you to <laughs> be kind of a jerk, you know, be a, be a mocker, but also to a brawler to where you think you're stronger than you are, right? But, which happens with some people sometimes, we'll see this in another verse in Proverbs in a minute, but it says, whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And this is the question we got to begin to ask, because it's one thing to say you're going you're to practice moderation, but if we're honest, in our culture today, especially the culture of a college campus, is the pendulum over here toward moderation, or is the pendulum over here toward abuse? Right, the pendulum's over here toward abuse, right? The culture on, at UA's campus and in Tuscaloosa is not moderation in alcohol, right? It's definitely <laughs> drinking too much, the party scene, all that kind of stuff. So this idea of being led astray is something we have to ask. If you're saying, hey, I'm a Christian and I am going to choose to drink alcohol, you have to do some deep soul searching to say, am I gonna guard myself from being led astray by it, from letting it take over too much of my life and letting it become too much of a temptation and a distraction in my life? That's something we have to ask. Moving on to chapter 21 of Proverbs. Verse 17 says this, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. One good point here is y'all, alcohol is expensive. Your, your bill will be way more money if you buy alcohol at the restaurant. So you'll, you will not be rich if you, if you buy a lot of it. But another part of it is this, is that who, who, who loves wine and oil will not be rich, right? He who loves these things is talking about this idea of overindulgence, this idea that you just are really craving that next drink or you really are just so, you know, I guess you even think as a Christian, so kind of proud of yourself that, yeah, I, I'm so like, you know, I, I have so much freedom as a Christian. Look how strong a Christian that I am that I can just you know, indulge in this and, and you know, I have liberty and all this kind of stuff. There's this idea of like an arrogance even involved in this too that Proverbs say that's unwise. It's not a wise way to live. Proverbs 23, this is the longest proverb we'll look at. 23, 26 to 35 says this. It says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit and an adulteress in, is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When I shall awake, when shall I awake? I must have another drink. 
So I want to point out really kind of two quick things. First off, I want you to see the connection between sexual sin and alcohol here. See, at the beginning of that, it talks about the prostitute and the adulteress and then immediately goes into alcohol. How many times have people fallen into sexual sin because they had too much to drink? A lot. So I think there's a lot of warning there for us very quickly to be very, very careful about the way that we think about alcohol. If you choose to drink it, because you have biblical warrant to, but there's a lot of biblical wisdom you need to look at because there are all kinds of temptations that come along with allowing that into your life. You have biblical warrant to do it, but you need to practice wisdom in it. So you see that in the beginning, but then you see all these other things starting like kind of where who has woe, who has sorrow. Really, this proverb gives you a lot of definitions of where the line is when you know you've had too much because people always wanna ask, okay, what, what is too much? How much can I have? Honestly, like many other things in life, that's the wrong question to ask, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. The question should not be how much can I have before I think I've had too much. Trying to toe the line is not a way to honor the Lord in this, I don't think. But if you wanna know some of the definitions, they give you some of them here, right? If you got red eyes the next morning, you probably had too much, it's wrong, right? If you or looking at alcohol when it says, do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup. If you find yourself getting way too excited about having a drink, you probably have an addiction problem. You probably have an idolatry problem. If alcohol becomes this huge deal in your life that you really feel like you need it, you crave it, like you really are really proud of how much you can drink or, or like how often you do things like that, you have a problem. I think Proverbs would say that you're in sin. Uh, when it says, it end, uh, in the end, it bites like a serpent, sings like an adder. Next, it says, your eyes will see strange things. Your heart utter perverse things. If, if you've had so much to where you begin to lose control over your speech and your thinking, you've had too much, right? If you are one who lies on t- uh, the top of the mast, they're thinking, talking about sailors. Some sailors, when they were on the boat, would sometimes sleep in the mast. The guy out there, well, what's, what's the mast doing? It's holding up the sail, right? The guy on the top is the one who gets the most rocking back and forth. When that dude gets on land, how's he gonna be walking for a while? Like he's gonna be all kinds of, his seed legs are gonna be real bad. He's gonna be, you know, swaggering and not swaggering that's not it you know he's gonna be swaying and swag well he's not gonna be swaggering that's a different kind of thing he won't be able to walk well right he's gonna be stumbling all things like that stumbling is what i was going for sorry um if you're if you can't walk well right you've had too much right um when it says they struck me but i was not hurt you've all seen the dude on the strip who thinks he can fight the, the bouncer at the bar right because he had too much to drink if you're thinking about if you're thinking that way you've had too much all right all these things i think give us some clear pictures that it's not well let me try to see how close i can get to that line that's that's just dishonoring to the lord right that's not a heart that's submitting to christ that's a heart that says how far uh, how disobedient can i be before i'm really outside of the boundaries right that's not what christ calls us to but this gives us some description of things to think about Move on to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 says this. It says, verse 11. It says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. If some of the, the parties on campus had a motto from the Bible, this would be the verse, right? That you, you wake up early in the morning and start drinking, and you drink all day long until late in the night, right? If that is, is you, you have a problem, abuse of it in that way. Verse 22 of chapter five says, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drinks. If you are braggadocious and want to brag about how much you can drink and your tolerance, things like that, you probably have a problem. You're probably stumbling into sin in alcohol because you're priding yourselves in the amount that you can drink. Let's move on to the New Testament. A few verses I want to show in there. I'm going to get to the last point. Well, it is already that time. Okay, I need to move quick. All right, Romans 13, 13. Got to listen fast. Romans 13, 13 says this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. 
Notice how drunkenness is put with orgies and sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy. That drunkenness is a serious sin. It's not, in our culture, we take it lightly sometimes. The Bible does not take it lightly. The Bible calls it a serious sin. So serious that if you look at Galatians 5, our next verses, we see this. In the anti-fruits of the Spirit, 5.19 says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, robberies, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying in here, if you've ever got drunk before, you're going to hell. Right? That's not the point of this text. The point, because I mean, Jesus is the one that saves you, forgives you for sin, gets you forgives you for sin so you don't go to hell and you can spend eternity with him, right? It's not your morality that saves you. There is grace and forgiveness. But if you're a follower of Christ, your heartbeat should be to obey the Lord, to submit your life to him, and to do everything you can to stay away from that list. And you would think, okay, things like, you know, sorcery, right? Things like rivalry, dissension, you know, fits of anger. We, we want to stay away from those things. Well, drunkenness is listed just as much in there, Right? So we got to see this is a serious sin that God wants us to take very seriously. Two more verses real quick. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Some people say, okay, well, I'll you know, just drink a little bit every now and then. And the whole idea of drunkenness in the Bible is more like a character trait. It's like, just don't get drunk too much. Don't make that like an addiction. But that's not true, because think about this. How often should you want to be filled with the Spirit? All the time, right? So the opposite of that is how often should you want to be drunk? Never, right? <laughs> and so it's not every now and then, but I won't make it a habit. No, it's, it's, it's never, right? That's, that's the pattern. And then 1 Timothy 3, 8, like we saw, that on the positive side, it says don't be addicted to too much wine. But on the other side, the negative, it says, right, don't be addicted to too much wine, right? That moderation should be something that you practice, right? That you shouldn't have this addiction. It shouldn't control you, but you should be able to control yourself and control um, how much you drink to where you're wise in it, okay? So that's the second thing we see is that the Bible speaks very seriously about drunkenness. Now, thirdly, let's kind of, let's tie it together for a minute and we'll close. The Bible teaches us thirdly to pursue wisdom in regard to alcohol. Uh, one of the most helpful things someone told me years ago in college was, you know, in many things in, uh, in the Christian life in the Bible, the question is not really, is this right or wrong? The question is, it, is, is it wise, it's not, hey, is this right or wrong to do? But no, hey, is this a wise thing to do? Because yeah, the Bible has some very clear lines on <laughs> what certain things are when it comes to sin. But there are some things in the Bible that doesn't give you a clear right or wrong because really it's encouraging you to wisdom and not simply to follow a list of rules. And I think that's really helpful when it comes to alcohol. The question is not, is it right or wrong? Because the Bible we've seen, right? Gives us biblical warrant to enjoy alcohol as a blessing from God. But it also warns us seriously about the sin of drunkenness. And so we have the responsibility to navigate it with wisdom, which means we have to seek the Lord in it. Also means that we need Christian accountability in it. And I want to tell you, if you're in this room and you're Christian, and you're like, you know what? I just don't want to drink alcohol. That's not really for me. That's great. Like, you, you don't feel like I'm trying to convince you to drink tonight, for sure. That's definitely not what I'm trying to convince you to do. Um, but if you are a Christian in here who chooses to drink alcohol, if you're over 21, under you're just it's a sin okay over 21 if you choose to you have a lot of biblical responsibility to practice wisdom in this that the 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 burden is on you to practice wisdom in this and to take this very seriously 
There's two things I kind of want to point out with this, though, when it comes to wisdom. It's first off that we want to be above reproach in our behavior regarding alcohol. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says this. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Listen, I know some Christians that kind of got into the world of, of drinking and they kind of came up in a world that was against that and they kind of, through, through their own convictions, determined it was okay. And they honestly became dominated by it. That they weren't necessarily going and getting drunk every night, but it became such a big part of their life that they kind of prided themselves as a Christian that I, I'm a Christian, but I drink, look how cool I am. That it really became such an identifying factor for them that it was really idolatry. And so they began, began to be dominated by it in that sense. But also we have the idea that alcohol in itself can dominate your mind, your thinking, your senses, that it can control you. So Paul says that we need to navigate this with wisdom and be above reproach so that in the way that we um, use alcohol or not use it, that people can't look at us and say, yeah, I think they, they're way too into drinking. They're way too proud of it. Or yeah, I think they're, they're kind of a drunkard. They're just having way too much. No one should be able to accuse us of that necessarily. No one should be able to accuse us of it. We mentioned Proverbs 20, verse 1 already, but I'll read it again because it's relevant. His wine is a mocker, strong drink of brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. That we have to be careful to see that we're not being led astray by this. Like I mentioned earlier, the culture in Tuscaloosa is not really moderation, right? The culture is abuse. So if you're going to choose to drink alcohol, you have a lot of responsibility as a Christian to be wise in moderation, be wise in not even how much you drink, but when you drink it and if you drink it, right? Because in this room, there's probably a lot of diverse opinions about this, maybe. I can tell you in our church, there's lots of diverse opinions about it. And so I'll tell you this, like there's, it's a, there's a lot of wisdom in, in choosing sometimes or many times say, you know what, like I have the Christian liberty to, to drink and to, to go to some restaurant in town and, and have a beer with my dinner. But is that really the most wise thing to do sometimes based on who I may see there and what they may think about me because of that? Is it fair they're going to say that and think that? No, it's wrong of them. It's judgmental. But overall, is it the wisest thing? Is it the most helpful? I don't know. It's, it may not be. It may not be. You have to exercise wisdom in that. But let me bring in one more thought to kind of help unpack that. So not only does the Bible teach us to be above reproach in our behavior regarding alcohol, it also teaches us to consider our other brothers and sisters in Christ when it comes to this matter of conscience. Uh, because think about this. While I mentioned, yes, Jesus drank wine, John the Baptist did did not drink wine. That Jesus drank wine, wedding at Canaan, uh, Lord's Supper, who maybe other times. John the Baptist, though, was a Nazarite from birth, right? He never drank wine. But yet, they're both illustrated as faithful Christians in the Bible, but yet they both did different things when it comes to alcohol. So within the church, we can have some, although it seems unfair to pit Jesus against John the Baptist, you probably want to be Jesus, right? You know, but you know, we can have some Jesuses when it comes to this and some John the Baptist when it comes to this in terms of our convictions. Our job is not to condemn each other and judge each other because of our convictions on this, but to honor each other in our convictions, right? But if like, yeah, again, if you're going to choose to drink, you have an extra burden of responsibility to navigate it wisely, Right? So with that, I want to read two more sets of verses that I think are really helpful, and then we'll discuss at our tables. So Romans 14, this is, I think, really helpful. Romans 14, 20, Paul says this, and I'll unpack the context in a second after I read it. Romans 14, 20 says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. 
But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the context here is Paul's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. That in that time in the Greco-Roman culture, there are many pagan groups that would sacrifice like an animal to an idol. And then they would have the extra meat and they would sell it in the marketplace. You could go buy it and serve it for dinner. And there were some Christians who had differing opinions on should you eat that meat? You know, some would say, well, it was sacrificed to an idol. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Others would say, well, that idol's not real, right? So it doesn't matter what they sacrifice it to. It's cheap meat. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to grill it and eat it, you know? So like, and so there are differing opinions on should I eat this or should I not? And in many ways, it can be applied, right, hermeneutically to today with alcohol, that Christians have differing convictions on this. The Bible gives us warrant to say that alcohol is a blessing from God, but Christians have different convictions on whether they choose to partake or not. And I think Paul's heart in this is really important. He says, do not for the sake of food, I would say do not for the sake of alcohol, destroy the work of God, right? That everything is indeed clean, that we have biblical warrant to drink, but it is wrong for anyone to make another believer stumble in their drinking, right? He says, even there later on in the verses, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. If you have a strong conviction that you're just like, you know what? I just don't think the Lord wants me to partake in this. You know, it's just my own personal conviction. Then you have every right to say, you know what? I'm not going to do it. And honestly, if you, you should not try to pressure yourself for sure into thinking, oh, well, maybe I should drink because I, because I can. Like, no, if you have a conviction from the Lord, honor that conviction. And Christians who are okay with drinking, don't condemn your brother or sister in Christ who has that conviction, right? You support them and you encourage them in that. Don't judge them or say, oh, you're just a legalist. You know, you just are trying to get salvation by works. No, don't do that. You can agree to disagree and support them in their conviction. Because like Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you can't drink an alcoholic beverage and drink it in honor to the Lord and and drink it to glory and glory to God, then it's sin. Right? If you can't drink alcohol and say, yeah, God is honored in me enjoying this beverage that he's given me, then it's sin, because right? it doesn't proceed from faith. If you can't enjoy it as a blessing from him, then just don't do it. The Bible would say, don't worry about it. It's not worth it. Last verse, and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. It says this, all things are lawful. This is unpacking more of what he talked about in chapter six. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So Paul's saying in this, in their conviction about meat, we can translate to alcohol, that you want to keep the conscience of your brother or sister in Christ in mind. That you're not, like he says, you're not dictated by necessarily their convictions ultimately. But if you know that your drinking around them is going to cause some conflict, it's going to cause some issues to maybe either make them stumble because they're going to be like, well, how, how are they drinking? Like, is that, what, what's up with that? Is, isn't that sinful? If it's going to cause a big stir and mess up your fellowship as Christians, it's probably just not worth it. 
Don't drink around them, right? Honor them as a brother and sister in Christ. And the same thing when it comes to non-Christians, that Paul mentions unbelievers here, that in your different circles, you'll know whether or not in the instance it's probably okay, but there may be many times as a Christian, you're like, you know what? I have the the liberty to drink around some non-Christian friends, but I'm not gonna do it because I know that's gonna probably cause them to think, oh, like, wait, so he's drinking. What does that mean about him in terms of being a Christian? Like, Sometimes you have the right relationships to where that's not a question. No one's going to care about that. Depends on the culture, on the setting. That's up to you to apply that. But the question we have to think is, how am I honoring the Lord and what kind of image and witness am I presenting in this? Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, I can enjoy this because it's a blessing from God. No one is concerned. No one's worried about this. I can enjoy it. Awesome. Other times it's like, no, I know this person is going to have an issue with this. I want to honor them as a fellow Christian. I want to honor them as an unbeliever who's exploring Jesus by not doing it. That in the end, you take your own pride and you submit it to the lordship of Jesus. You take your own freedom and liberty and you submit it for the sake of other people, right? Out of wisdom and out of care and concern for them, okay? So with all that said, you know, in the end, I'm not gonna tell you exactly what to do, right? Because in the end, this is a decision you have to make that every Christian has to make their own decision about where they fall with this. But I would say practice wisdom with it. That we have the biblical warrant to enjoy it, but in our culture today, the pendulum is way more toward abuse. And so if you choose to partake in it, you gotta be careful. You have to exercise biblical wisdom, exercise moderation. You need to have some friends, Christian friends, who can really hold you accountable in this area, right? All these things are super important because the Bible talks about drunkenness very clearly as being a grievous sin before God, okay? But yet again, it's also something that he's given us as a blessing. So there's, there's a wisdom there But in the end, no matter where you fall in this conversation in the end, we have freedom in Christ to disagree. But like Romans in 1 Corinthians says, we have freedom to serve each other, both by not judging those who choose to partake, and by also, if you do partake, by by not rubbing it in the face of your fellow Christian who chooses not to. Because in the end, it has to come out of our own faith, has to come out of our own convictions, our own walk with the Lord and our own, own wisdom. Okay? So with that said, and that was a lot, but I want you guys to take just a, a few minutes. I gave you two questions tonight, not, not three. Uh, just a few uh, questions to chat about for just a moment, and then I'll come up and, and pray for us and dismiss us, okay? Let's pray. God, you are good, and you've given us so many things um, in the world to enjoy, alcohol being one of them. But also we know, Lord, that you've given us things to enjoy in the world, but you've given them to us uh, with parameters, with boundaries, and our own hearts many times we want to take those boundaries and overstep them for our own sinful desires and cravings. But Lord, at the same time, we have the ability to enjoy them rightly if we enjoy them according to your guidelines. And as Christians, we can even enjoy them to your glory because they are blessings from you. Um, but I pray for these students tonight. I know that the, the culture of this town and even our culture at large in our country is not one that typically celebrates moderation. And so I pray for them as they think biblically about this issue Um, that they would be able to come to their own convictions about this based on what they see in your word, that they would um, have the the clarity to see maybe the, the, the things they bring from their own background in terms of family and stuff, and really sift that and discern it according to your word and see where they fall on this. And, and no matter where they end up, Father, I pray that you would give them a, a strong conviction based on what you say, not what somebody else says. And I pray that you'd help them in this to to navigate with wisdom, that wherever they fall on it, they would seek to honor their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They would especially seek to honor you in the way that they practice moderation, in the way that they uh, they practice to flee from drunkenness and to not even give any foothold of that in their life for your glory. 
But I pray that you would guide them in this and you would just give them wisdom and help this even be a way that they can even talk about how their faith impacts her life to non-Christians, to those who don't follow Jesus. That wherever they end up falling on this, they can give a, an account for, well, this is why I fall on this in the way that I do. And that can even lead into ways for them to talk about the gospel, to talk about what Christ has done in their life. Well, we love you. Pray you guide the conversation tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.